Today's scripture reading is from the Good News According to John, chapter 20, beginning at verse 19. When it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and the doors of the house where the disciples met were locked for fear of the religious authorities, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be to you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. When he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. And if you retain the sins of any, they are retained. But Thomas, who was called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the mark of the nails in his hands and put my finger in the mark of the nails and my hand in his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were again in the house and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were shut, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Do not doubt, but believe. And Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have come to believe. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that through believing you may have life in his name. Hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Thanks be to God. Good morning. I want to begin this morning by saying thank you for this invitation and thank you for the wonderful hospitality Reverend Ingrid and this whole worship team have shown me. Thank you so much. It's so good to be here. It occurs to me that the, that the last time that I preached from this pulpit, and possibly the only time, was on the occasion of Ryan's covenanting service. Needless to say, uh, that afternoon or evening, I forget which, the sanctuary was significantly more full of people than it is this morning, a, a sobering reminder of uh, the ravages of COVID-19. It's leaving me, of course, with the very strong hope that the next time I'm here, whether to stand here or just sit out there amongst you that we'll be able to gather in good numbers, side by side, shoulder to shoulder. May it be so. And please join me for a word of prayer. Now may the words of my lips and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. 
So per- permit me to, to begin with a confession. When Ryan invited me to be with you today, my immediate reaction was delight. However, as, as soon as it dawned on me that today would be the second Sunday of Easter, my next reaction was, oh no, not that again. <laughs> not the story of Thomas yet again. A, a reaction which may strike you as, as a wee bit harsh, but a reaction that is quite understandable. You see, in in the United Church of Canada, along with many other mainline denominations, we follow electionary, a set of Sunday scripture readings that rotate on a three-year cycle. Most Sundays, even including Easter Sunday, present three different gospel selections over the course of that three-year cycle. But on the Sunday immediately following Easter, it's the same story year in and year out. That of Thomas, better known as Doubting Thomas. Well, I'm not entirely certain, to be honest, as to why that story features so prominently on this particular Sunday. Yesterday, I was actually in a Facebook group with some other pastors speculating that the reason this story shows up here is it's the only resurrection story, the second part of which is explicitly set on this Sunday. That seems like a pretty good explanation. What it does mean is that I have now had pretty close to 30 opportunities, count them, to preach on this particular passage over the course of the past 30 years. No wonder lots of clergy take this Sunday off. (laughs) I'm looking at you, Ryan. At any rate, as as soon as I awoke to that connection, uh, I began looking for the exit ramp which in this case meant reading the other suggested readings for this Sunday, including terrific passages from the book of Acts, terrific passage from 1 John, even had a peek at the psalm, a very short and beautiful psalm, the the 133rd. Why not preach on one of those? Why not dare to be different? But then in the midst of all that restless seeking and searching, Something happened. Some of you may be familiar with the name Tim Keller. Tim Keller. Keller is a remarkable and in some circles somewhat controversial Presbyterian pastor down in the States. Perhaps best known as the founding pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City a congregation which in 1989 began with 50 members and eventually grew to a congregation of over 5,000. And and those of you thinking, eh, what's the big deal? There's 8 million people in New York, 20 million people in the greater New York area. Trust me, as as an ex-New Yorker, growing a congregation with 5,000 people 
is difficult anywhere. It may actually be more difficult in New York City than anywhere else. At any rate, Keller is also a popular writer, producing the kinds of books C.S. Lewis once produced, the kind that are, are meant not only for insiders to the church, but those on the outside looking in with questions they'd love to see answered. Nor does he only write for in-house publications such as Christianity Today. His articles can occasionally be found in places such as the New York Times and the Atlantic Monthly. As a matter of fact, it was when I was knee-deep in my let's preach on anything other than Thomas that I came across an article by Keller recently published in the Atlantic Monthly. In that article, he reveals that having just published his most recent book, which bears the rather ominous title, On Death, Keller's doctors unexpectedly informed him that he's suffering with pancreatic cancer. Most of us will realize what the words pancreatic cancer mean in terms of life expectancy. Keller, who's just a few months older than me, having turned 70 last September, is a pretty typical 70-year-old baby boomer, taking for granted at least another decade or so of reasonably good health, an expectation that appears in his case now to have been shattered. That launched him on some serious self-reflection, which he shares in that article. Now, while the word doubt does not explicitly get used by Keller, for me it provides the backdrop to everything else with which he is wrestling there. He writes, One of the first things I learned was that religious faith does not automatically provide solace in times of crisis. A belief in God, he continues, a belief in God and an afterlife does not become spontaneously comforting and existentially strengthening. Despite my rational, conscious acknowledgement that I would die someday, the shattering reality of a fatal diagnosis provoked a remarkably strong psychological denial of mortality. Death, he continues, is, is an abstraction to us, something technically true, but unimaginable as a personal reality. Then he draws upon his, his experience as a pastor. He has this to say, a significant number of believers in God find their faith shaken or destroyed when they learn that they will die at a time and in a way that seems unfair to them. Before my diagnosis, I had seen this in people of many faiths. One woman with cancer told me years ago, I'm not a believer anymore. That doesn't work for me. I can't believe in a personal God who would do something like this to me. As Keller concludes, cancer killed her God. And, and, you know, reading that article killed any desire on my part 
to speak this morning about anything but Thomas and his defiant expression of his doubts. That article, in effect, was a, was a wake-up call, a sharply worded reminder, better still, three interconnected reminders. First reminder is Christian disciples, when we come face to face with death, the truthfulness of the resurrection, both Christ's and ours, becomes a big deal. Second reminder, in the face of death, embracing the truth of the resurrection will always pose a challenge for us, no matter how vibrant our faith. Third reminder, and, and this was the hard one for my ego to swallow, Maybe, just maybe, the lectionary planners knew what they were doing when they decided that the story of Thomas was one that we could stand to hear not just once every three years, but each and every year at Easter. I began these thoughts with a confession about my initial response to the prospect of preaching once again on the story of Thomas. Here let me share the irony of that initial response, namely that I actually quite love this passage. It's a story of which I'm inordinately fond, even if I have preached on it too often. I love it because I find it to be remarkably relevant, because it provides a comforting and sobering reminder to us as thoroughly modern millies, and finally, because it is theologically profound. Let me take each of those in turn. When I speak of the, of the relevance of this story, it's, it's relevance to the life of faith you and I lead that has to do with the, the close parallel between our situation and Thomas's initial situation vis-a-vis -vis the good news of Christ's resurrection. Recall, as, as Ingrid so beautifully depicted, recall that our story begins on Easter Sunday when Christ appears to the gathered disciples. Thomas, however, is MIA, missing in action. And so he has no choice but to rely on the testimony. That's a key word. No choice but to rely on the testimony of his friends, which, of course, is precisely what he's unwilling to do. And yes, over the past 20 centuries, testimony not exclusively, but above all, the testimony of those first disciples who encountered the risen Christ. Testimony continues to play a key role in the life of faith. To be fair, testimony plays a big role in every aspect of our lives. In most matters, not only are we happy to receive it, but we have no choice but to take most things on the testimony of others. If we stopped to check everything out, we'd, we'd be frozen in our tracks. And yet, to be fair, given the enormity of what we claim at Easter, given the nature of the, 
the news his friends shared with Thomas in the immediate aftermath of their encounter with the risen Christ, it's hardly surprising that both he and we find ourselves harboring at least a wee bit of hesitancy in the face of the Easter story. And yes, that, that's part of what I love about the story of Thomas. It's remarkable relevance to our lives of faith, yours and mine. Side by side with its relevance, I want to name what I've described as the comforting and sobering reminder this episode provides for us, specifically as those who continue to live in the modern world, a world in which countless people regard science not only as the royal road to truth, but as the only road to truth. It was so wonderful to see those Einstein glasses and know that he was a scientist who didn't quite adhere to that kind of orthodoxy. At any rate, I'm, I'm, I'm always reminded here of, of what may well be the most famous quote from a really wonderful and insightful New Testament scholar with whom I don't agree on everything, however. His name was Rudolf Bultmann. Bultmann famously said, we cannot use electric lights and radios. We cannot use electric lights and radios and in the event of illness avail ourselves of modern medical and clinical means. And here's the punchline. And at the same time believe in the spirit and wonder world of the New Testament. And yet, while it's certainly the case that the authors of the New Testament were familiar with neither Francis Bacon nor Isaac Newton nor Einstein, these ancient people did have a pretty good inkling that when one of their friends was dead and buried on a Friday afternoon, that you didn't need to set a place for them when you were getting ready to serve Sunday dinner. That's why I so value the story of Thomas and his doubts. Much as I value the story of Paul preaching in Athens from the 17th chapter of Acts, where his sermon is going swimmingly well until he talks about the resurrection, and then they say, oh, this is a nut, and they laugh and they walk away. With all due respect to Professor Bultmann, to whatever extent the challenge of faith is different now than it was way back then. I regard it as a difference in accent, not a difference in substance. From the outset, resurrection faith always has been and always will be contested faith. And yes, that sobering and comforting reminder is a second reason why I'm grateful for the story of Thomas. But, but there's one more thing about this story that I highly prize, and when push comes to shove, it holds pride of place for me. Not just its relevance, not just its comfort, but its theological profundity. Consider. Consider that we know him as doubting Thomas, which, which only seems fair. But perhaps we should also call him 
profound theologian, Thomas. You see, wittingly or unwittingly, Thomas points us in precisely the right direction in terms of dealing with our lives of faith, including all of the inevitable doubt that will accompany our lives of faith. Ponder, if you please, the difference between what Thomas asks of the risen Christ and what the devil in Luke and Matthew's Gospels asks of Jesus at the outset of his ministry, offering him the power to turn stones into bread, Jesus tells the devil no, offering him the power to rule the nations like a strong man, Jesus tells the devil no, perhaps most absurdly, offering him the power to perform neat magic tricks such as safely crash landing from a very tall building. Jesus says, no. Think of how different Thomas's request turns out to be, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Is that an expression of doubt? Let's not waste time disputing that. And yet it is so very different from the magic tricks with which the devil sought to entice the Lord. Th Thomas, you see, has no time, no time for ghost stories from his friends. And he refuses to be swayed by high-sounding talk of signs and wonders. What he is insisting upon is that the risen Christ be none other than the crucified Jesus. I'll repeat that. He is insisting that the risen Christ be none other than the crucified Jesus, except no substitute. What, what he yearns for is to see face to face and, yes, to touch the wounds of the one who only three days earlier had stripped off his outer garments, had taken a cloth and basin and washed the feet of his friends. That's the encounter for which Thomas yearned, and yes, when push comes to shove, that's the encounter for which we too ought to yearn. Not signs and wonders, not magic tricks and demonstrations of raw power, simply a face-to-face -face encounter with the wounded healer. A face-to-face -face encounter with the one who, who bears the scars of God, in short, an encounter with the one whose power is love and whose love knows no bounds, no limits, no barricades, because he is prepared to push to the side any obstacle in his unrelenting quest to embrace each and to embrace us all. And of course, as you all well know, in the church we have a fancy name for that sort of love, when it's combined with that sort of power. We call it grace. Much as Christians, perhaps especially we Protestants, like to speak of being justified by our faith, God help us. Certainly God help me if my justification, if my salvation hinges on my faith. I'm in deep trouble if that's the case. In the end, my faith is only as strong as the grace that undergirds it. 
the grace revealed so beautifully in the face of Jesus Christ. I love the way uh, Father Richard Newhouse puts it in his classic book, Death on a Friday Afternoon, a book of reflections on the seven last words from the cross. In his reflection upon the second of those seven words, the words spoken to the so-called good thief, this day you will be with me in paradise, Newhouse ponders that which motivated the, the good thief to turn to Jesus, unlike his companion who joined the rabble who were deriding Jesus as he hung on the cross. He asks, from whence does such faith arise? How might such faith be sustained? Here's what Newhouse has to say. We are Christ's friends not because we have befriended him, but because he has befriended us. Jesus had said, you did not choose me, but I chose you. And so it still is with us today. Look at him. Look at him who is ever looking at you. With whatever faith you have, however feeble and flickering and mixed with doubt, Look at him. Look at him with whatever faith you have and know that your worry about your lack of faith is itself a sign of faith. Do not look at your faith. Look at him. Keep looking and faith will take care of itself. This is the gospel of our blessed Lord. In his name we give thanks. Amen. Well, there was a woman from Samaria came to the well to get some water There she met a savior Who did a story tell There he was made richer She drank down from the pitcher And the water he gave her Yeah, but it was not from the well Jesus Oh, Jesus, me water. Jesus gave me water. I'm gonna let His praises swell. Oh, Jesus, give me water. Oh, Jesus, give me water. Jesus gave me water. Yeah, but it was not from the well. On that woman he had pity Yes, she ran back to the city Crying glory, hallelujah And did his wonders tell The times that she was doubting He left her but a shouting And the water that he gave her Yeah, but it was not from the well Jesus gave me 
his praises swell. Oh, Jesus, oh, Jesus. But it was not from the world All that woman he left shouting Yeah, there was no room for doubting She had met a savior Who did all understand And that man that they met her Well, he was made her richer from the water that he gave her yeah but it was not from the well Jesus gave me water oh Jesus gave me Jesus gave me water I'm on the left oh Jesus gave me oh Jesus Jesus gave me water Yeah, but it was not from the well